This is the Ignition Show. Hello everyone, welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of the Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. One of the foundational drivers in my life since my teenage years was to gain a deep understanding of what it truly takes to be successful in life. I had the potential to do well, or so I thought at the time, and became obsessed about learning about the secrets of success. At first, this took me down a path of quote-unquote achievement, how to excel, how to lead, how to win, how to compete, and perform at the highest level. The second phase of my curiosity led me more specifically to explore our inner game, our mindset, our attitudes, beliefs, and the realizations that we can influence so much of what underpins the drive to achieve. But perhaps the most important phase of my journey has been to understand the deeper science of what shapes our most fundamental beliefs about who we are, our identity, our self-image, and our self-worth. The power of our subconscious mind and the lessons we learn very early in life that leads us to create a very strong beliefs about how to survive, how to be loved, and what it takes to be valued. The advanced science can be far too specialized for us to translate into practical applications on our own. So we needed leaders to simplify and provide a language to help us grasp what is really going on inside us and give us simple tools that are proven to work. Today's episode's guest is one such leader. He's an author, a Stanford lecturer, and a CEO whisperer. Shirzad Shamin has created a scientifically grounded, measurable, and super, super practical body of work called Positive Intelligence, which helps us liberate us from old programming so we may live fully, freely, and openly as our best self. There is so much to learn in this episode, so be sure to capture your key ideas and spend time reflecting on what holds you back and how you can tap more into your infinite potential. It was an absolute joy to have this conversation with Shirzad, and I hope you enjoy listening too. On to the episode. On today's show, we're speaking with Shirzad Shamin. Shirzad is a New York Times bestselling author of Positive Intelligence, an amazing book now translated into 20 languages. He has been the CEO of the largest coach training organization in the world and has trained faculty at Stanford and Yale business schools. Shirzad lectures on positive intelligence at Stanford University and works with Stanford's NCAA athletes, a preeminent C-suite advisor. Shirzad has coached hundreds of CEOs and their executive teams. His background includes graduate-level studies in neuroscience, in addition to a BA in psychology, an MS in electrical engineering, and an MBA from Stanford. And what I appreciate most about all his work, while it's deeply grounded in advanced, proven brain science, ultimately it's about uncovering and reconnecting with your amazing potential, your magnificent self, and living your true calling in life. Shirzad, welcome to The Ignition Show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. It's a great, to, great to finally connect with you. And I have to say, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I first came across your work, as I mentioned to you, about three and a half years ago. And since then, your book has been staring at me from my bookshelf in my office, essentially calling me to bring these ideas to life even more. And ever since I reached out to you a few weeks ago, I've been reacquainting myself to the concepts and research and tools and continue to be struck by, I guess, the raw truth of what our minds do and do to help and hinder our success. 
you know, there are so mm-hmm. many pathways I want to go down in our conversation, but first, perhaps for the benefit of anyone not familiar with your work, I'd love to first set the baseline of the body of knowledge and wisdom you've developed in the field of positive intelligence. Can you set the scene for us? What What is positive intelligence and how do you define it? Uh, well, the easiest way to talk about uh, this is uh, if you're a fan of Star Wars, what I can tell you is that inside your mind there's a war going on uh, constantly between your inner Jedi and inner Darth Vader's. Uh, inside every mind there's a battle going on between different voices, some of whom uh, uh, sabotage us, and I call those voices saboteurs, agents of self-sabotage. And then the counterpart to that, the voice that's our true self, uh, the one we were born to be, that one I call your sage. So, um, the, so the so my work is about the battle in your mind between your inner sage versus inner saboteurs, and how they live in different parts of the brain, and how uh, if you learn how to activate the sage inside yourself and make it stronger and weaken the bad guys, it results in far greater happiness and less stress, and also uh, it's your path to your peak performance. The reason we call this positive intelligence is that we can actually measure the relative strength of your sage versus your saboteurs. So uh, we define positive intelligence as the ratio of uh, your sage versus your saboteur in terms of how often you spend time in one versus the others. And I know that uh, a lot of your research shows the amazing impact this can have from not only happiness and success, but hardcore numbers like sales increase or team performance in a business setting. Um, you know, and it certainly is a, is a, a great build on previous fields of, of understanding of what it takes for humans to be at their best. And I suppose just even based on the name that you've got of positive intelligence there could be a relationship, or, or I guess, what is the relationship between this as a um, as a as a field of understanding our success? What's the relationship between this and IQ or or EQ, emotional intelligence? You can just talk to that. Yeah, no, uh, not much of a relationship with IQ, uh, but a huge relationship with EQ. Uh, in that, as as we already know, emotional intelligence has been shown to be a uh, uh, highly correlated with, uh, high, uh, with great performance as a leader and a bunch of other uh, functions. The problem we have had with emotional intelligence is it's defined as a, almost a do, uh, two dozen competencies. And it's very hard for people to figure out, well, how the heck do I begin to develop my emotional intelligence? Uh, so we have had a relatively dismal record in, in training and coaching industry in sustainably raising people's emotional intelligence. We typically do things that have a very brief uh, impact and people fizzle back to their old ways, partially because it's pretty complex knowing where to start and which one of these companies to address. So part of our research uh, did factors analysis on what are the fewest number of core building blocks that if you deal with those, then you can end up building up all these emotional intelligence competencies much more easily. For example, we found that there are really only five positive powers, which I, I, we call the positive powers of the sage, uh, just like there are only three primary colors uh, with which you can paint any canvas. All you need really is access and uh, deepening of these five uh, great powers of the sage. 
and then dealing with some of the saboteurs uh, the way I'll, I can show you guys later in this call. And as you do that, then uh, all your emotional intelligence competencies automatically develop. So we have gone basically to the core building blocks uh, out of which emotional intelligence is built up. So we really are uh, showing people a much, much, much simpler way in action of boosting and sustaining their emotional intelligence and therefore their performance and therefore their ability to enhance relationships, be less stressed, all of those goodies that come from that. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciate of the work is it's uh, is the simplicity of of the model, the terminology that you have, the way to understand yourself, and and a way to kind of label these different saboteurs, which we'll which we'll get into. It really makes it very approachable, which I think makes it make people make it um, people can relate to it, and uh, it makes it easy to work with. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan on that. I'm a big fan of Einstein saying, "Make things uh, <clears throat> as simple as possible, but uh, not simpler." Yes. And so what I think in this work, what I think we have is that, say, uh, think positive is too simple. If I could really think positive, of course, things would be great. But then that model is too simple. It's not very actionable. Then emotional intelligence is not simple enough. And there are almost two dozen competencies. Where do I even start? And mm. so I think positive intelligence position right in the middle of just as simple as you can get without getting too simple. So that's highly actionable. Yeah. And again, before we dive, before we dive into the details of, of some of that, uh, some of that <clears throat> simplicity, uh, I wanted you to take a, a, maybe a big step back. And I love when you tell the story of how you got to this point, you know, your journey appears to, to follow very closely to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. You were, you were on a path of entrepreneurship and you had what you refer to as the entrepreneurial meltdown, uh, where you went from being a highly energized, extraordinary, positive, magnetic visionary running a growing company to becoming a controlling, distrusting, micromanaging monster no one wanted to work with. And I'm guessing that didn't happen. That transition <laughs> didn't happen overnight. I appreciate your, your honesty and your vulnerability with that. But I, I'm curious. I'm guessing that transition didn't happen overnight. And when you look back now, on that whole transition of your own, how you showed up as a leader in that situation and how you were kind of called to battle in so, so many ways. What do you now think about what happened to you? What's your perspective when you look back on that whole thing now? Yeah, it's funny. As, as you were reading back to me, some of the words I've used to describe who I became, it was hard listening to it. I indeed turned into a monster of... Uh, you know, horrible, uh, you know, judging, micromanaging, controlling leader nobody wanted to work for. Uh, and I describe a palace coup where, uh, you know, people wanted to get rid of me from a company I had founded. So, so what, in retrospect, <clears throat> what I think happened is that <clears throat> when, I, when, I dis when I came up with my vision for the software that we wanted to create, I was in touch with that creative part of myself that just, uh, you know, uh, was feeding on itself. Creativity lives with the sage part of me, and it lives in a part of the brain uh, that gives rise to the sage. So I was in a virtuous cycle of my creative zone where my creative ideas were really uh, having other people get all excited about the vision and possibility and brought in investors and employees and all sorts of excited people just lining behind that vision and so it was a virtuous cycle of my sage that a positive part of me bringing out other people's sage and feeding on itself 
So all that great stuff had me live in the sage mode. <clears throat> then we, out of that, we raised a ton of money from, from very well-known people, about 10 CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, uh, amazing board members, amazing employees. So all of that was great. <clears throat> and then about two plus years into this, uh, as I was running this company, the product was late, the main customer was complaining, things weren't going according to plan, stress was getting higher and higher and higher. And what I know now is that <clears throat> stress is a fuel for the saboteurs in our mind, and also those saboteurs further fuel that. So not, not unknowingly, I had shifted more and more and more to a completely different part of my brain where my saboteurs lived, and some of those saboteurs were controller, and judge and stickler and I turn into a completely different being. I basically my inner Jedi started the company. My dark warriors were now running the company two years in. So what happened is uh, one um, one day I, I went out for to get some food, came back to my offices in downtown Palo Alto, which was on the second floor. Uh, went upstairs and my heart sank because what I saw was that my chairman of the board was sitting in the boardroom, my president, whom I had hired was a, bit, was a buddy from business school, was sitting at the board table, and my top uh, VPs and another director, they were basically there with a uh, palace coup to push me aside from running the company uh, because the president and my VPs had basically not been able to work uh, for me anymore. And uh, they, they couldn't stand working for me anymore. Even though they had been so drawn to my sage in the beginning, they couldn't stand my Darth Raiders. And mm -hmm. so that day I lost a ton of my power and authority and autonomy. And yet that most painful day of my professional existence also became the most life-changing because it forced me to look at what had happened and over time helped me realize this whole topic we have today, which is I am a mixed bag of extraordinarily beautiful, positive, visionary sage and really dark, ugly saboteurs. And if I'm not careful who is running the show, I can go from being one person to another with all sorts of consequences, which is what I these days teach other people. Yeah, it's an it's amazing story. And, and I know one of the core... Um, tools or, or techniques, I suppose, that you talk about is to be able to see some of your darkest, most challenging events of life, to see, see the gift and opportunity there. How long did it take you to, uh, to go from that dark day of the, of the palace coup to, I, mean, I wouldn't say necessarily fully see it as a gift, but start to see it as a gift. How long did that, was that, that time frame for you? Well, if I had tools of positive intelligence, it would have taken <laughs> a very short period of time, because I, but I didn't. So I did stay for quite a bit of time in just pure rage, feeling, feeling betrayed by my best friends and by people I trusted. And I thought they did it for selfish reasons and self-serving reasons and kind of lost my faith in humanity and just who can I trust now? Can I ever trust another person? So I was a victim of it. I was enraged about it, but I couldn't walk away from the company because I'd brought in all the investors. I'd brought in the, the, the key client. I'd brought in all these employees and, uh, you know, I couldn't just walk away from them. So I had to stay in the company, work with these people I thought had betrayed me because I didn't have the option of walking away. And, 
And that was, as you can imagine, profoundly painful. Some days I could hardly breathe. It was so painful. And that's what forced me to, you know, search for ways where I could, you know, figure out what's happening inside of me and is healing possible. And through some of that search, I found, you know, I, I discovered all these things about, oh, there's, I am really of two brains, not one brain. And I'm right now highly activated in the wrong part of the brain, the part I call the survival brain where all the saboteurs live. And if I could quiet that part of my brain and activate a different region where my sage lives, life will look and feel completely different. So I learned to do that. And I didn't have these terminologies for it, but I discovered I really have two brains and have entirely different worldviews and I've got to figure a way to activate the other. And as I shifted to the other, the wisdom of my sage uh, became accessible to me. And from that wisdom of my sage, I saw that actually what these people had done was they were fighting for my vision. They were... Uh, they were honoring my vision. They were, they were really saying, Shirzad, you're killing the very vision that brought us into this company, and we are going to fight for your vision and, and save it from you. Uh, and so they were fighting for the right cause. And as a matter of so fact, I not only forgave them, I actually honored them, and I am so grateful for them. And they're all uh, very close to me now, and I'm very close to them, I'm very grateful. Uh, so how long it took? It took uh, it took a couple of years uh, initially, uh, but now I, I teach people this much, much, much faster way of shifting from one to the other and treating everything that happens, even smaller misfortunes, uh, with the perspective that says I can and I shall turn this into a gift and opportunity. And becoming curious how and that shifts you much more quickly to that way. Yes, yes. There's no doubt that I can I can speed up. And um, it's unfortunate you had to be perhaps the guinea pig to to take uh, to figure <laughs> have to be the one to figure this out. But now that you have figured it out, I absolutely believe, and I've experienced it myself, that um, you can learn, you can develop the muscle. So uh, to to <clears throat> to respond more effectively in a shorter time frame to even sometimes the you know the worst challenges that you could imagine on someone. Um, just again, just as maybe as a baseline for 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 our conversation here, you've talked about the two brains and the one brain, the brain that does not serve you, it sabotages you, the, the style of thinking. You've identified saboteurs and you've uh, and in our show notes, we'll have a link to your to your work. But you've identified, I guess, nine saboteurs, nine. Would it be accurate to call them nine persona or nine uh, modes of thinking that can show up in a in a brain and in a thought patterns that really don't serve us would that be an accurate way of describing it or how we, might you describe it differently yeah there there are actually 10 and the reason you said nine is oh because yeah, sure. the, yeah because there's a 10th one which is the master saboteur i call that one the judge right so right. the judge is the, the master saboteur that everybody has and then the nine are a collection of what i call accomplice saboteurs, accomplices to the judge and Typically, people have two or three of those, and they have names like the, judge, the controller, the victim, the avoider, restless, stickler, um, you know, pleaser. These are pretty familiar names, and most people have two or three. Uh, and and the, the, the way we, we know that they are messing with us, the easiest way to tell when you're in saboteur mode is by paying attention to your energy and emotions. If your energy and emotion is going negative, uh, it doesn't matter what the situation is, what the circumstances are, you are being hijacked by your saboteur. So what we show is that the sage or inner Jedi 
is able to handle any challenge and any crisis uh, with positive emotions ranging from empathy to curiosity, creativity, uh, you know, calm, clear-headed, uh, you know, resolute action. All of those, like Jedi in war, a Jedi in war being attacked by multiple enemies is not feeling scared or upset or angry. Uh, she's very clear-headed and calm and centered and handles what's happening, right? The saboteurs have you feel stressed. The, the, the biggest telltale sign of saboteur-oriented presence is you feel stressed. You feel upset, you feel self-doubt, you feel, uh, you know, anger, shame, guilt, all of those are telltale signs that the way you're dealing with the situation is through the mechanisms of your saboteurs. Uh, and so the easiest way to tell is what am I feeling emo uh, in terms of emotions right now? Uh, I love this. Again, I love the simplicity of that. It makes so much sense. So much sense. Um, you also, you've got a wonderful assessment, which I want to talk about in a moment, uh, that people can do online. Again, we'll have the link in our show notes for people to identify what, what might be their, their dominant or their lead saboteurs that tend to show up most often. You also have uh, identified that maybe a, a shortcut or an easy way to understand is by the key question um, that is, to survive and succeed, I should blank. And why is that the question? And, and what answers do you tend to hear when you've shared that question with people? Uh, yeah, so th that, that takes us to the origin of saboteurs, right? So how come we all have saboteurs? And the reason we all have saboteurs is that as a kid, you had to answer that question. Uh, so uh, the human uh, child is very vulnerable uh, our lives uh, is in the hand of, of others. Uh, some species of animals, you know, the moment we're born, we're pretty self-sustaining. The human child has uh, its life dependent on others, attention, love, caring of others for a long time. That's a very vulnerable place. And even if you have perfectly loving parents, you still, from the perspective of the child, you're in a pretty vulnerable place. I mean, even your perfect parents uh, you know, you, you might be the center of their love and attention. And all of a sudden, there is this other kid that's born and is brought, brought into the home. And from a perspective of a child, you say, oh, my God, you know, everybody's going goo goo gaga over this new new one. I, am I going to lose the love, attention and be a danger for my survival? So even with great parenting, the human child needs to figure strategies for survival, physical and emotional survival, answer the question of in order to succeed and uh, survive. I must, uh, how, the way you answer that question becomes your strategy for survival. So, for mm -hmm. example, the controller saboteur, the way it answers it is I got to dominate and control and dictate how things are going to go. The avoider uh, saboteur ends up saying, you know, I got to avoid all the unpleasant stuff and all conflict. That's the way I will survive better. The pleaser Saboteur way of answering that question is I got to please, please, please. So people like me so that I can survive. So basically all of the saboteurs are one way or another of answering the question to how do I maximize my chances of survival and success in the world. And unfortunately, while those are very helpful and important as a kid, as an adult, they, they hold you back from both being happy and, um, now, if, if I understand correctly, you've had over 300,000 people take the assessment on your website. What, what is your research showing? Is, is there, are there certain saboteurs that are, are more common or is there a, is there a quote unquote 
number one most common saboteur? Are there differences between men and women or regionally? What what insights do you have on that? Yeah, we have had such a riches of data. We have not gone through and mined all the possibilities there. There are slight differences we see uh, gender-wise. Uh, uh, the pleaser tends to be a little bit more common with women. Uh, the hyperrational tends to be a little bit more common among men, but a little bit, not by an by extreme measure. So lots of uh, hyperrational women and lots of pleaser men exist out there. Then culturally, there are some differences. For example, in uh, say in Japan, the pleaser saboteur is something that a woman in Japan, unfortunately, is brought up with uh, some uh, you know expectations that what they should do is to please. So uh, a, a woman in Japan may look at the pleaser saboteur and say, "Are you sure this is a saboteur? Isn't this just to be a good good way of being?" Uh, some other uh, things, variations we see, for example, in Germany, there are more uh, sticklers that culturally, uh, uh, the culture honors that way of being in such a way where people uh, think maybe it's not a saboteur. And in, in, interestingly, in the United States, the hyperachiever is such a way of life that people wonder why, why in the world is this called a saboteur? Is it an achievement all that there is? And I say absolutely not, not the way the hyperachiever does it. So there are variations, but but they're slight. They're not the determining factor. Yeah, I, I took the assessment again, and, and the one, my top saboteur the, uh, that came out, um, the, um, what do you call it, the accomplice saboteur, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, my top accomplice was, was avoider. And um, it didn't surprise me. It didn't surprise me by any stretch. But when I read your description that the report provided, it was definitely uncomfortable to shine such a spotlight on that. And while I wouldn't say that I'm, uh, I wouldn't say, and this maybe is my saboteur trying to defend yeah. myself, uh, I wouldn't say that it is a dominant theme in terms of uh, overtly I'm, I'm avoiding conflict or difficult conversations because many times I would. But there was certain, there certainly is an undertone. And the one statement that really hit me as a kind of the one that a recognition of, of the avoider is that you write that feeling numb to pain is different than knowing how to harvest the wisdom and power of pain. And I thought that was such a profound statement. Can you just tell us what you mean by or, or how does one harvest the wisdom and power of pain? Well, um pain and all negative emotions are uh, I mean, one of the questions I often get asked is are you really telling us that uh, negative emotions are all bad and we should just absolutely avoid feeling them and in order to answer that question I, I ask the question well is it good to feel pain and as people think about that they say yeah it's good to feel pain why because if you go to a kitchen the oven is left on you accidentally put your hand on the hot stove uh, you would burn your hand to the bone if you don't feel pain. So pain, therefore, is very useful. But the really important question then is, how long would you like to feel the pain before you get the message, right? And so, therefore, pain uh, is very helpful, but as an alert mechanism, it's really good to listen to pain, otherwise you're in trouble. Same exact thing with negative emotions. So it is really awesome to feel the ouch when you are uh, having an interaction with somebody and you hurt their feelings or they hurt your feelings or 
a failure or a mistake happened, it's really good to feel an, an, an initial moment of negative emotion, get angry, get upset, get disappointed, get ashamed, feel guilty. Those are awesome things to feel because if you don't feel any of that, you will not. You will keep doing what you were doing, and uh, you, and you, uh, you you're gonna make a bad situation worse. But again, similar to pain, the value of negative emotions is in that initial second, because pain, uh, because negative emotions are awesome deliverers of a message that says you've got to pay attention. Something here needs to change, and uh, so so there are two ways that saboteurs mess with you. One is to have you uh, keep putting your hand on the hot stove. So if you feel angry, if you feel ashamed, if you feel guilty, they will have you keep feeling those things under the lie that says, unless you keep feeling bad, you're not gonna do anything about it. You're gonna become lazy, complacent, whatever. And what we do, we say is, no, no, no. the first second, uh, feel all those negative emotions, awesome. Take the information, the alert, and then shift to a different part of your brain that knows how to positively deal with the problem. And that part of your brain is much wiser about how to handle the problem than if you stayed in a negative brain that all it knows is how to keep feeling bad and make other people feel bad. Now, in the avoider's case, it actually doesn't want you to feel any pain at all and uh, makes you numb to the pain. And so there you are missing the important information that you would get if you were willing to be honest with yourself and really feel the pain and, and, and the psychological pain and the emotion and say, ah, oh, I really need to pay attention here. Mm-hmm. The avoider to avoid the whole thing by not being honest about the fact that there is that emotion. Yeah, I'm, I'm making a note of that. I think there's some, some ways I can apply that for sure in the, in the days ahead. Um, I want to loop back within everything you said there. So much, so much, so many great points there uh, about that. All of these saboteurs really developed as a young child. Um, really, they're initially designed to keep us safe, but we can often end up being the prisoner to our own saboteurs. So true. And, and it really comes down to physical and emotional survival. And I think physical survival, certainly people get when there's you know, a mountain lion pounces out or a truck's driving down the road. We want to take care of ourselves or there's a you know, physical environment of a crowd or whatever it may be. Emotional survival might be a maybe a either a harder one for us to wrap our heads around, or we're just not taught how to wrap our heads around is one. So a couple of questions here is, would you say is, is one of those more powerful than the other physical survival versus emotional survival? Um, yeah, physical survival is primal. So anytime, I mean, if you, if you, if there's a tiger, if you're sitting there depressed and upset about the relationship and a fight you had, or, the job you lost and moaning and groaning about all those things which are emotional. If a tiger is thrown into the room and, and runs at you and that becomes a physical survival, I guarantee you, you will not be feeling any uh, pains about your job loss or about your uh, conflict that you're having. You will bolt. All you will think about is physical survival. Yeah. So it, uh, it overrides everything else. But, but people, uh, but since that's not, most of the case with, with with us in modern time, that is typically not real. Uh, actual physical survival survival is not the real danger. The real danger is emotionally we are under constant assault from our own saboteurs and other saboteurs regarding our sense of identity. Who are we? Are we good enough? Are we attractive enough? Are we smart enough? 
uh, will we make it in this career? Will we, um, you know, be rejected in this uh, relationship? Uh, so we are under constant assault of um, for emotional sense of well-being, our sense of identity. Are we so are we safe? Are we respected? Are we liked? Do we matter? All those things. Yes. Um, it, it's been it's been said. I've heard it enough that there seems to be a, a common. Um, understanding that in the, in the schools of psychology that around the age of 35, while we can, our brains are still, there's all the neuroplasticity, we can still learn and grow, but around the age of 35, we become fairly set in our, and I might have my, my terminology slightly off, but pretty set in our, our, our personality and how we tend to see things. Is it, is that something that you, would you agree with that? And, and if you're under 35, does a lot of this work around managing your saboteurs and weakening those, is it more effective? And if you're over 35, do you, do you have to do a little bit more work? What would you say to that? Well, fascinating. Uh, most of my clients uh, have been uh, beyond 35 because uh, I, I charge, <laughs> charge a ton of money for the work I do and most People below 35 can't afford it. So I've, I've had mostly experience with people above 35, except for, say, athletes uh, and people in sales that tend to be younger. And uh, if uh, that statement of above 35-year-old dogs, more or less, that don't learn any new tricks would, were true, I would pretty much quit what I'm doing. Uh, so it's absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, I think one of the most exciting things about neuroplasticity we used to think the brain kind of gets set in its ways, but we are now know people in their 90s are laying down new neural pathways and you can cause atrophy of some old ones and cause generation of new neural pathways. So I think one of the most exciting things about neuroscience has been busting any of those perceptions that ah, I'm an old dog and I can't learn new tricks. And But I do find that that's the number one sense of resignation. Even with people below 35, I find... The number one resignation after they discover their saboteurs is, but isn't this just the way I am wired? Mm. Do people really change? And your saboteurs would love for you to believe that people cannot change. And yet I hear every day from people I work with that I've changed their life. And, and it's sustained like a year or two later, I'm still hearing that work we did together changed my life. That's what drives my uh, you know sense of purpose. That's right. That's great. You know, you mentioned... Um... Um, working with people who are over 35, you know, a lot of your work is, is with leaders, probably in their 40s or 50s. And you mentioned that some of the biggest issues is, for those people is that they've they've been high achievers, yet they maybe aren't highly fulfilled, that they've reached their goal, but not the associated happiness that they expected to come with that. And to get them to face their saboteurs, to understand that their saboteurs are really are, might, what, what might be preventing their happiness throughout the process of their own lives, um, to get in the face of saboteurs or, or their misguided thinking that happiness happens when, can, that can often feel like going down a slippery slope. And it may unravel many core elements of the life that they've built. It may come to, they may feel like they're, that they are coming down like a house of cards. How do you help someone in that situation remain, remain grounded, maybe remaining in their sage, while potentially challenging their worldview of who they are, what matters, and what their achievements represent to them? Great question, because, uh, you know, what I've learned early on is that if all I did was confront people's saboteurs, uh, they, they didn't know what to do about that because they often 
pretty accurately would tell me, you know what, you're, t you're talking to me about me having a controller saboteur, but it's the being a controller at work that has gotten things done. Uh, all my successes come from controlling people and events and pushing people to the limit. And so who would I be if I weren't the controller, right? So unless I showed them that there is a counterpart in their brain, that their sage, that has even more power than any of their saboteurs that could have motivate people to even greater achievement than the saboteurs would, they wouldn't be willing to let go of what has gotten them here. So I, we definitely need to do the work together. I need to have them let go of one mechanism of pushing themselves to greater and greater achievement and uh, simultaneously latch onto another mechanism that will pull them to even greater successes. Otherwise, it's a non-starter. And one way I talk about the difference between the two is that the saboteurs keep pushing you and pushing you and pushing you through negative emotions to help you improve and perform better. And basically at the heart and essence of all saboteurs is that primal force of uh, you know, survival, uh, which is uh, fear. So all saboteurs are fear-based, and most of these leaders have been pushing themselves through fear of failure, fear of not mattering, fear of poverty, fear of looking bad, uh, fear of abandonment. Whatever the fear is, that fear has pushed them to do better and better and better and push themselves. The problem is they they keep pushing themselves to greater success, but running afraid all the time ain't a recipe for for happiness. So you can be. Uh, you know, greatly successful, but not happy at all. That's the case with most of them. Then the question is what's the alternative? And uh, the alternative is that the, there are two primal forces that make life possible. One is fear and the other is love. So sage is all based on love. So every modality of the sage is based on some kind of love. And it's either love for yourself or others love for uh, discovery, love for invention, love for meaning and purpose, love for, you know, uh, creating things in the world. What It's all ba a pool based on love, some kind of loving something. So what I tell people is, you know, you can keep pushing yourself through fear or start pulling yourself through love. And all of our research shows that that pool with the positive emotions of love will have you achieve even higher and have a whole lot more fun along the way. Happiness is only possible through the sage. Hmm. Um, yeah, it really, it really strikes me that the, the contrast, the simplicity of the contrast of, of love and fear, and it, and it really can be a choice as to which you decide you want to have led, uh, lead you and kind of drive your bus um, easier said than done sometimes. So we'll get into, in a moment, we'll get into some of the, the, the simple practices that you've introduced and have created. I also want to look at, uh, touch on perhaps maybe the, a different group of people where, you know, in addition to the, the high achievers and CEOs and athletes that you've worked with, you know, there are certainly are people and there's a large part of the population that really struggles. And um, I'm interested in your in your perspective on the societal conversation around mental well-being, mental illness, it's certainly talked a lot more about, certainly in North America, the North American perspective on this, um, certainly talked a lot more openly in the media, in, in, in television shows, um, in, in corporations are doing a lot more initiatives around mental well-being, mental illness. Um, but there's still a stigma around it. 
even classifying it as a as an illness, it, my perspective yeah. it tends to get messy. And um, what's what's your view on, on where we are as a society in talking about this and in, in accepting this is maybe a part of all of us in some way? What what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love that question because it's actually one of my greatest joys about what I have created. I think that starting with Freud, we did ourselves a great disservice. And Freud had this, you know, attitude of, hey, I am the doctor. You are the patient. You are the neurotic, lowly patient that I have to fix. And so instantly there is a stigma to being a patient and diseased as if there is such a thing as the doctor who is not diseased. And so what I have shifted the conversation to is what in the world are we talking about here? Mm. Every human being alive is a mixed bag of inner saboteurs and inner sage. Every human alive, including me. And I, in my book and in every interaction I have, I absolutely constantly confess to the fact that I have my saboteurs. And I will, I will always have my saboteurs. They, there is that part of my brain that occasionally gets activated. The saboteurs have neural pathways that occasionally get triggered. So uh, rather than thinking, am I diseased or not? Is there something wrong with me or not? I just talk about we all are somewhere in the spectrum of how much we spend time on saboteur versus the sage. The work we do is push you more and more towards the spectrum of more and more time in sage, less and less in saboteur. Every human alive is somewhere in the spectrum right along with you. There's nothing problematic with you. You're just having a human experience of the war within your mind. And so it takes the stigma away. When I go to corporations and like, you know, I work with teams where for years they've been walking on eggshells and giving each other feedback because there's there's a stigma around fear and perfection. My, my God, I got to pretend I'm perfect. And within five minutes, I've shifted the conversation to, okay, I have the pleaser and avoider. What are, how do you self-sabotage? And then somebody says, oh, I guess I got the controller. I guess I got the stickler, I guess. So it really takes away the stigma and therefore has us no longer be in denial of the fact that there's work to be done. Uh, yeah, I, um, I agree in, in some of the workshops that I've, I do. Um, it's a different, slightly different conversation, but it, it's amazing how quickly you get a group of people who've been working together for years, suddenly realize that they're not alone, that they're not the only one who's either stressed about that process or annoyed about that tool or can't stand that, that personality in the group. And it can be really liberating for people. And I often, I often find, and, 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 and I often find that for a lot of times, um, the more we talk about it, the more normalized it becomes and the more normalized it becomes. And we, and we have a language around it. It really takes the sting out of it. Um, but it yeah. also can liberate a lot of trapped potential within a, a team, a, 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 an interaction, yeah. a relationship, et cetera. Yeah. I think the word normalize is exactly the right word. We normalize the fact that we are having a human experience together and that each of us feels less perfect than we wish to be were. And each of us has all sorts of moments of self-doubt and, uh, you know, disappointment. And that we can now have to put a label on these and normalize uh, the fact that we are going through it. And, you know, uh, it's, it's also very powerful in family dynamics, right? I have made sure, I mean, I did talk with how most of the people I've worked with in corporations are senior leaders of a certain age, but you know, the place where I have valued my work the most is actually at home with my own kids. 
And the way I've done that is be honest about the fact that I am an imperfect being. I'm an imperfect father, that my bad moments of parenting are when I get hijacked by my saboteurs. And it's only in acknowledging that, that then my kids say, oh, that is not perfect or pretending to be. I guess we are, the fact that we are not perfect uh, is not something we're embarrassed about. Like, uh, and it just empowers them to do the work without feeling ashamed about the work. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I, it was a, a moving to me when I watched some of your your, your TED talks, specifically in some of your other presentations, where you tell the story of uh, the the game that you play or the interaction you have with your son. Um, and in fact, I was going to just say reference it in the in the people can find the link, but could you actually share that story? Because I think it's moving that the way that um, looking at it through the lens of parenting and um, uh, about that story of how you interact with your with your son. Yeah, so uh, a, a really big problem that I find all high achievers that I work with, almost every single one of them, not, not almost, every single one of them, I can't even think of an exception, is that their self-acceptance and self-love is totally conditioned on achievement. Uh, and that's a, that's a saboteur. And I say that it's almost like you are running yourself like a rat in a maze at the end of Running the maze, you give yourself a little cheese, that a boy, and then you have yourself run another rat race. That's no way of treating yourself. That's, that's conditional love and acceptance, which is no love at all. So in order to, for my son, as he was growing up, to not develop a similar self, uh, you know, conditional self-acceptance based on how good have I been today and how well have I performed, I started this tickling game. Since he, is, he actually loved tickling, so I, I would start tickling him and I taught him all these uh, responses to give, otherwise I would not uh, stop tickling him. So I would tickle him some and say, hey, Keon, tell me, why do I love you so much? And he would say, well, daddy, I don't know. Why do you love me so much? And I would say, well, is it because you're so uh, you know, good in sports and, and do so well? And he said, no, no, uh, it's not because of that. And I would say, is it because you're so uh, good in school and get good grades? And he would say, no, it's not. And I would say, is it good because you're kind and generous? And he would say, no, it's because you're handsome. And he would say, no. So I kept going down a list of qualities. That's why I love you so much. And he, he had learned to say, and he would say, no, daddy, that's not why you love me so much. And then towards the end, I would, I would, I would keep tickling him. And then I would, I would pretend great frustration. And I would say, hey, so why is it, Kion? Why do I love you so much? And uh, he has learned to say, and he says, Daddy, it's because I am me. Daddy, it's because I am me. Um, and I get moved every time I say it myself. Uh, and then uh, occasionally I ask him, so what does that mean? Uh, it's because I am me. And and he says, the person I was born to be, the one you held in the hospital, that person has always been me. Uh, and you love that being. That being never changes. So I don't have to perform for it. That person is worthy of love, and you love me, and I love me. And I don't have to perform for that. So, so that's my tickling story for how to make sure one's self-love is unconditional uh, unrelated and it's more based on the essence of who you are you're born as uh, unique as your fingerprint you're a special being that being that you are that's your sage that being never changes any parent who has had more than one child knows that each child is born with a unique 
completely unique original blueprint. And, uh, and, and that being is gorgeous, it's beautiful, it's worthy of all the love in the world. And I like for parents to remember that about their kid and not have them perform for their love. And, and even more importantly, I would love for you to ask yourself as you're listening to this, are, is your love for yourself conditional or unconditional? Uh, unconditional means that even at the end of a day when you have made all sorts of unforced mistakes and fails, failures and errors, you look yourself in the mirror and what you feel is deep love for this beautiful being that you are, who happens to have had a day that where you have made some mistakes. You know, that's unconditional. You feel that. And if you don't, I would suggest that's work number one, that's ground zero of this work. Uh, until you look in the mirror and all you see is, is this beautiful being that you are looking back at you and fill up with love and adoration for yourself. I adore myself. I love myself. I, I, I think I'm a beautiful human being. And I used to just hate myself for how imperfect I was. But, uh, but that doesn't come out of arrogance. That comes out of just a very grounded love for myself. I'm a beautiful being. I've always been since I was born. Please make sure you do, do enough of this work so you feel that about yourself too. Who were you when you were born? How beautiful were you and are you? And can you see that when you look yourself in the mirror today, regardless of how old you are? That's such an inspiring example of letting the sage be in control or lead the way you think and certainly the way you parent. Um, I'm about to become a first-time dad where... Oh, um, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, super exciting. We are uh, at the time of this recording. We just hit week 29. Uh, my wife is doing well. And, um, you know, we talk a lot. My wife and I have talked a lot about <laughs> jokingly kind of how do how, what can we do to not mess up our kids? Because uh, we're, we're both tapped into a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. And, you know, how do we not mess them up knowing full well that by trying not to mess them up, we'll probably mess them up in some way. Uh, but make them feel loved and safe and develop a really healthy self-image. That's just such an inspiring example. I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and I can feel your emotion come through with that. I'm curious, you, you tell that story when, you're, when your son was, uh, I guess, much younger. He, I think he's a teenager now. Uh, and how, what would you say? How has that, let's, let's continue the story here. How, how, what is your perspective both professional perspective as well as parental perspective of playing that tickling game and getting him to realize he is loved unconditionally. How has that shaped him now for what stage he's at? Um, well, the, 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 the most important thing about the parenting that I, in terms of, of continuation of my parenting, I want to share is at some point it became very clear to me that as a parent, the kids don't believe in these models and in these teachings unless and until they see you walk the walk and, and actually uh, do these things yourself. So it doesn't become real to them. They don't become believers until they see you uh, authentically live this way. So, uh, so the most important moment of my parenting where this stuff became real for my son is uh, few, uh, several years ago, I was on a phone call with our head of sales who had just lost the biggest client of the company. And, uh, I got hijacked, you know, by my saboteurs. I was upset. I, you know, I needed still uh, with my practice, I needed a few minutes to recover from that hijack and go back to my sage and uh, be in a centered, peaceful mode. 
But I didn't have that time because the moment I hung up, my son was around me and did something. And because I was hijacked, I screamed at the top of my lungs at him and he was all dejected and hurt. And he went to his room. So then I started saying, oh, oh gosh, this is horrible, horrible, horrible. I just lost all credibility with my son. I've been talking to him about positivity and sage. And look, I acted like this. Oh, my God. What have I done? And then it was clear to me that I am hijacked. I'm feeling these negative emotions more than a second. It's I am hijacked. I need to un- recover from hijacking. So I did these things I call a PQ wrap, which I'll be glad to show your audience how to do, and recovered, shift, shifted my brain activation, recovered to Sage. And the Sage instantly said, you know what? You just made a big mistake, and we can turn that into a gift. Mm-hmm. How do we turn that into a gift? It was very clear. So I... I walked to my son's room and he was laying on the bed dejected. I sat by him on the bed and I said, hey, Kian, so who barked at you back there? And he said, it was your poop maker, daddy. And uh, at the time he called my old saboteurs poop makers. <laughs> and I said, I said, you're exactly right. That was my poop maker. And I, re- I really apologize for that. You deserve better. It had nothing to do with you. I was hijacked. I'm sorry about the impact on you. And then, uh, who is talking to you right now? And he said, it's your sage. And here's the clincher. I asked him, uh, how long did it take me to shift? And he said, it took a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And it really had taken like three or four minutes. So now, all of a sudden, he was a believer in this model. So, so many great things came out of my making a huge mistake with him. One was that he saw dad as imperfect. How horrible is it if a kid grows up with a parent pretending that they are perfect? Because the kid knows they are not perfect and they're constantly feeling guilty and ashamed for not being as good as their parents. But here's the parent showing that he is totally imperfect. And here's a parent who actually is walking the walk, gets hijacked, and then within a few minutes has used some practices that he has been preaching to me, but he's practicing it himself because he has shifted to sage within a few minutes And he has done what he also keeps preaching, which is even when you make mistakes and failures, you can turn that into a gift. The way he turned it into a gift is he came and talked to me and deepened our trust and and relationship with each other. Wow, this stuff works. That's when he became a believer, right? So that's what I want to say first and foremost to any parent and to any leader and to any coach. If you want to help other people uh, follow these practices of positive intelligence and drop their saboteurs and shift to sage, you better be doing the work yourself and you better uh, you know, close the loop on your own saboteur hijacking, be authentic, be vulnerable, and use these moments to show that you're in this journey together and that you're, that you're not just preaching, but you're actually doing the work yourself. Well, it sounds like uh, your interaction with your son is... Uh, not only helped him in his development, but certainly continues to serve you well in your development as a parent and your your growth as a as a as a father as well. Uh, again, very inspiring. Uh, it also makes me wonder. I, I I your your comment about you know kids won't believe the model, they don't understand it, or they can't follow it, or they certainly won't believe it until they see their influencers, their parents, maybe teachers, but parents would be the strong one, um, walking the walk as well. And I don't know if this is the right question, or if maybe you could you would rephrase the question. But what I'm wondering is just staying the theme of 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 us learning, us as human beings learning that we have these saboteurs and sages, and and we have a capacity to manage this more effectively. At, at what age should this be taught? 
in, in to kids or in schools? Is age the right way of looking at it? Yeah, I, I one of the long term, uh, you know, goals that gives me goosebumps is the question of what happens if in every high school, we, uh, uh, as educators and as parents, we tell ourselves, hey, we, we owe our kids physical uh, fitness education, but we also owe them uh, mental fitness education. And what we teach here is mental fitness, which is the missing link in education. We teach our kids everything except mental fitness, which basically says there are muscles in your brain that are currently weak, the muscles of the sage, the muscle of self-command, the muscle of you running your brain rather than letting your brain run you. That's a muscle that can be built through daily practice, and it's going to make the biggest difference in the world for both your happiness and effectiveness in life. So let's teach you that. There's an art and science to this. Let's teach you that. So and and so at high school level, absolutely. I mean, my son even started a positive intelligence club in his high school, and was proud of the fact that he really impacted some lives of his fellow high school students. Uh, so high school for sure. Before high school age. Uh, at a simpler level, kids absolutely can understand a simpler version of this, which says, you know, there are different, there are, there's a friend a voice in your head, there is an enemy voice in your head, all your mood, all your disappointment, all your self-doubt, all those guys, all that comes from that voice. Let's put a name to that voice. And again, my son called that the poop maker in his uh, mind. And uh, ask you the question, who's talking in your head right now? That concept, actually, kids get pretty early. They don't need to know exactly the 10 saboteurs and which one they got. They can tell there are different voices in their heads. And that uh, the, the idea that they can command their mind, that it's a choice, which voice to have in mind can be relatively quickly taught at simpler levels. And then one thing we haven't talked about, which is these things we call uh, PQ reps, which is ways to 10 second techniques to shift your brain activation. So you shift from the part of your brain that saboteur lives to activate the part of the brain where the sage lives. You can teach that to kids too. And uh, the, the two simple ones that I, do, that I did with my kids, one is uh, that we can kind of practice together. If you take two fingertips and gently rub them against each other. Uh, so take two fingertips, gently rub them against each other with such attention that you can feel the fingertip ridges on both fingers. So feel the fingertip ridges on both fingers as you yeah. gently rub them against each other. As you're doing it for a minimum of 10 seconds, if you had your uh, head under functional MRI, we would notice that the part of your brain where your sage lives got ever so slightly activated and the part where your saboteurs live got ever so slightly quieter. And so that's one really fun way for people to begin to shift from one to the other. The other, which we tried at dinner table uh, early on with our kids so that we could turn it into fun and games rather than neuroscience, we basically would say, hey, let's everybody close our eyes and really taste and uh, all of the sensations and flavors and taste of the next bite of food in our mouths. So put all of our attention on, you know, the sound that, uh, that um, lettuce makes when you crunch on it and the, the texture and the flavor and all that stuff. And uh, basically what you're doing, that's another way of putting all your attention on sensations of smell 
and and taste also shifts your brain. But there's a bunch of different 10 second things that we teach people how to do. So yeah. I got them into the practice without them getting too serious about it. That's, uh, that's wonderful. And why why 10 seconds? Why is that the magic number? Would, would, or it's, another way of asking it would be, would 20 seconds, would that double my strength of my sage? It's a, it works on a non-linear thing. So uh, if you if you go to the gym and double up the number of dumbbell reps that you do, your muscles won't go, grow to double the size. There's a linear. There's a non-linear curve that it follows, but you absolutely build more muscles if you do more. So as a matter of fact, there, there is a number that we recommend for people to do on a particular, if they, if all they did was that they need to, those 10 second things, they need to do about a hundred a day. But since we have them practice also on Sabbathor and, and Sage, what we know is that you need about a minimum of 36 a day. So uh, we have developed an app that guides people through doing a bunch of PQ reps, these, these things I call a PQ rep, has a counter that shows you how many reps you have done towards your goal of 36. But also um, has daily practices on uh, intercepting your saboteurs, daily practices of shifting to your sage perspective and activating your sage powers. So what we have found is that you kind of uh, need to have a little bit of assistance for people to remember to do these muscle building exercises enough so that they, it builds new uh, habits of the mind. Mm. I know you, you talk about your the. I guess the core technique to develop on this or core principle, I suppose, is uh, principles are to weaken the saboteurs and strengthen the sage. And is that something that you do in parallel? Do you need to start with weakening before you strengthen? How would you describe that? I typically start with the saboteurs because they are the enemy inside. And unless you expose their tricks, then if you try to focus on the sage or just do these PQ-ups I was talking about, the saboteurs are going to come and sabotage any practice, which is why we are so familiar with change attempts fizzling. Everybody knows about the phenomenon of yo-yo dieting and why you know, 90% go back to the old stuff, which is also very similar to any other change people try to make, but 90% fall back. The reason is these saboteurs are really sneaky at making sure you quit the good practices because they don't want to lose power over you. So we always start with the saboteurs and discrediting them and, and calling them on their lies. And, um, and that's, uh, and typically I tell people I have good news and bad news. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is that your saboteurs are doing much more damage to you than you have any clue they are. Mm-hmm. And typically when we have, we, we have people practice, uh, noticing their saboteurs and accepting them for a couple of weeks. And invariably people say, oh, my God, I had no idea however present my judges or some of these other saboteurs, how much damage they're doing, how many lies. So that's the bad news. And then the good news, once they really get the bad news and get really motivated about, I can't live with this. You know, this is not the way the, this this thing cannot continue. Then we have them, uh, you know, really practice the techniques of shifting to sage. And what I tell them is the good news is that your sage is far more powerful than any you have any clue you are. The saboteurs have made you forget who you really are. So I really help people remember who they are. And who they are is much more magnificent, powerful, beautiful than they have any clue. So the good news is much bigger than the bad news in the, in the whole process, the overall. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the um, one of the things are, are the industry of personal growth or personal development is is maybe um, maybe could have done a better job of uh, informing people is that so much of growth as adults is is not from a doing or achieving more usually it's stripping away the stuff that's been piling up the the uh the poop makers that have piled up around us uh to reveal our true self to reveal our true potential and so we can get into more flow or effortless you know whatever it may be um really moving towards our our calling and what we're what we're really here to do um i'm also interested sorry go ahead go ahead so I, I, I wanted to just underline what you said. There are two big lies that we have fallen into in personal development. One is that we have to change you. And what I tell people, very similar to what you just said, is no, no, I don't want to change you. I want you to remember who you really are. That's your sage. And I just want you to begin to disidentify yourself from these invaders who are not you, from your saboteurs. So I, let's reclaim who you are, not change who you are. And that's that's a, that's a, and and you use the word effortless when you go to your say you know rise of the saboteurs is, is no pain no gain that every important good stuff has to come with great difficulty and pain which is a self fulfilling prophecy if anything when you go back into yourself your sage things become effortless so mm-hmm. what I talk about is the path of the sage the way of the sage is the way of ease and flow. If something is feeling really, really difficult, your saboteurs are having you uh, deal with it right on your sage. So, so yes, uh, re- uh, discovering who you are, remembering who you are, not mm. changing yourself. Second thing, uh, which we haven't talked about, the second biggest lie of personal development is that insight is what you need. And so people go to workshop after workshop, read book after book. Oh my God, I got to get the insight that finally fix me. And I look people in the eye and say, you know, my book is awesome. People call it life-changing. And for most people, insights fizzle away because insight is only 20% of personal transformation. The other 80% is muscling. Uh, these saboteurs live in your brain in the form of neural pathways or muscles. They become the automatic habit of your mind because they got muscle power. You don't fight muscle with insight. You need to fight muscle with muscle. And muscle does not grow by reading a book or going to a two-day workshop. Muscle grows through daily practice. Yes. So the last few years, I've been passionate about you know busting that lie. I look people in the eye and say, You're, everything is going to fizzle for you in this inspired conversation we just had unless you practice for at least six weeks, intensively 15 minutes a day, for at least six weeks so that the neural pathways of the stage are built up and you develop muscle memory for it. And so I've been building an app and a program to keep people going long enough so that they have a fighting chance against these muscular saboteurs. So well said, uh, those two lies. And um, you mentioned within there, you, you said it earlier on there was, uh, we don't have to change you. There's a, you said dis, disidentify. Can you just expand on what you mean on, on that with that term? Yeah. So, uh, so one of the things that we do is we have you identify your saboteurs and create a wanted poster for them. So let's say the judge. So I look at my judge saboteur and begin to see, oh my goodness, this judge keeps lying to me in this way and that way and that way and that way. So that then when that voice shows up in my head, the work that we do is label 
that saboteur and uh, disidentify ourselves from that voice, so to speak, and say it's the judge talking right now rather than I am talking. Or, and it's a big difference. So let me do an example. So here's an example. Notice the difference between if I say, oh my God, I think I'm going to fail tomorrow. That's one way of, you know, being versus the second way, which is my nasty judge saboteur is saying, I'm going to fail tomorrow. <laughs> even, even as you say, even as you say that with a, uh, oh, sorry, the, sorry, say, go ahead, continue. Sorry. No, no, you, no, you go ahead. I, I want to know why you laugh. Well, I was going to say even just, even the, the tonality of your expression, when you, when you have a, a laugh, you're la almost laughing at your judge at the same time as identifying it is the judge, not me as a person. Yeah. I think that is also a, 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 a maybe a, a subtle addition to what you're saying, but a very, very powerful part. Yeah, exactly. And and I wanted, uh, I, I'm glad you just noticed the, the shift there. I want people to see the simplicity of the work, which is uh, in the first instance, I was giving credence, power, and credibility to the voice of the judge saying that it is me talking. And in the second, I disidentified, put it outside. And to your point, Chris, I brought a sense of humor to it. You know, I, I sometimes when my judge shows up, I say, what took you so long? I've been expecting you 15 <laughs> minutes ago. What took you so long to come and tell me I'm worthless and I'm going to fail in this project? So. Uh, because if you get upset at your saboteurs, guess who is bringing the upset energy? That's your judge double dipping on you. Mm. You getting upset at your saboteurs, at your imperfection, makes you even more imperfect because it's your saboteurs messing with you. So we want to have a sense of just humor about our saboteurs, constantly see them, label them, and call them in their bluff. And of course, they'll come back, and then we do it again, and they come back and we do it again. We don't get frustrated by them. We we take the, get the upper hand with positive emotions. You um, when you talk about double dipping there, it makes me think that uh, often I have the conversation with leaders. This you know, when we talk about how whether it's a conversation around resiliency or 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 managing their own stress um, or how they're coping with the pressure that they're feeling, people often relate to the, the kind of the pathway they go down that when pressure increases or stress increases, we tend to double down on certain exactly. strengths. And yep. those certain strengths then can become liabilities. And does that, does that when, you, when we, under pressure, under stress, when we double down, is that also an indicator that we might be, we might have flipped from the sage to the saboteur or, or how might you describe that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, First of all, what you said is exactly true. Under stress, people double down on their go-to way, which typically is their saboteur way. Mm -hmm. And one way to t think about what a saboteur is, a saboteur takes your greatest strength and turns it into your greatest weakness by applying it at the wrong place or to an extreme uh, level. Uh, so, for example, uh, let's take stickler. Stickler is uh, when somebody, uh, when I know that somebody's a stickler, I know immediately that this person has a level of strength in uh, attention to detail and bringing organization to chaos. That's an awesome quality. That's an awesome strength that if their sage uses, their sage will use that strength with positive emotion and brings 
order to chaos and makes people feel wonderful and cared for and create great results. The stickler, it takes that orientation and makes it into being an over-perfectionist for whom nothing is ever good enough, who is constantly complaining of, uh, even if something is 99% good, why that 1% isn't quite good. And so, uh, so takes a, a strength and turns it into your greatest weakness. And the higher the stress, the more, the more a stickler becomes a stickler, the more a controller gets a controller, which is why I was saying earlier that once you get into the vortex of saboteurs, it becomes a self-reinforcing thing. It fuels on itself, which is why, uh, you know, at, at my company, what I was saying was I've gotten into the vortex of my saboteurs have become unbearable and I needed the palace coup to wake me up. What I really value about what you said there and, and the principles that you're talking to is that it can be confusing when people, as you say, rely on a strength, they double down on that and it works for them. It's worked for them in 80, I don't know, a large percentage of time. And suddenly now it's not working. And that can be confusing for our yeah. mind to figure out whichever mind is in control. Um, what advice do you give leaders or people when they, when they are over relying on a certain strength and, and it's causing some challenges for them? How do you, how do you bring yeah. some organization or clarity to that confusion? Well, a couple of things. One is I say, uh, again, the simple, the simple uh, way of knowing if I'm using my strength through my sage or my saboteurs have hijacked the strength is the emotions. Right. So when a sage is attempting to bring order to chaos, when a sage is attempting to create some level of control in a situation, the sage is doing it magnanimously with positive emotions that draw people in that become a positive contagion effect that half people want to work with you and all that stuff. Uh, so pay attention to your own emotions and emotions you're triggering in other people. And if it's negative, know that you are uh, either using the wrong tool uh, and become a hammer that sees everything as a nail, that the strength that you have is not what's needed right now and you should look at something else, or that you're overdoing it. You're being the perfectionist who are good enough is good enough, not good enough in situations where it should be. Uh, so that's uh, the other metaphor that I bring as helpful to people. I tell them, you know, you need a toolbox that has, has a few different tools. So if, uh, if, you, if, you, uh, are, if your go-to tool is a hammer uh, and what's needed, uh, and if there's a nail, great, use that tool. But if you need to paint a canvas, you need a different tool. You need a brush. Uh, so and a great example of it is, uh, you know, one of the saboteurs is hyper-rational. A lot of the leaders, especially in Silicon Valley I work with, are hyper-rationals. And they, are, they have always been the smartest kid in the room, very highly analytical. And that, that tool of the rational mind, I tell them that's a nice hammer. And when there's a rational problem, let's use that hammer of the rational mind. Awesome. Let's keep that tool. However, relationships there's nothing rational about relationships human beings are messy beings so when you're having conflicts in a relationship you, the 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 hyper rational comes in and tries to fix the other person and the fix the problem by telling the other person i get it you know there are these three things and this is what we should do and does not pay attention to emotions does not deal with feelings and shows no empathy and basically does more damage than relationships so what i tell the hyper rational is you know, in relationship conflict, you need the brush of empathy. You don't need the hammer of rational mind. Don't overuse that tool. Expand your toolbox. And 
the the sage, as I was saying before, has five core powers. Empathize is one of them. So when people shift to their sage, they stop being a hammer that sees everything as a nail. They expand their toolbox with five awesome uh, tools of the sage, powers of the sage. So they ask the question, what's needed here in this situation? And they use the right tool rather than overuse the one that they, that saboteur does. That's great. And that's great. Again, it reinforces the fact that regardless of your history, regardless of your years of experience, regardless of your age, you can certainly learn to uh, better manage your inner world. Uh, so you continue to show up as, as the best person that you can be. Yeah. And that person is far more awesome than, than you realize mm -hmm. when you activate that region of yourself and say, wow, you fall in love with yourself. You know, I want people to fall in love with themselves again, not out of a narcissistic thing, out of just yeah. the joy of beautiful being that you are. Yes. You know, when I get up on stage and I say I'm awesome, I love myself, people don't receive it as a narcissistic thing because it's not, because arrogance actually, arrogance is a, is a, saboteur thing. I'm not arrogant. I love myself just like I love the sage in every other human being that I meet. So I, I want people to fall in love with the beautiful being that they are and not listen to the lies of the saboteurs focusing on all oh, that's imperfect. Yes, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, before I ask the, the final question, Josada, I want, um, where can people learn about your work and get in touch with you if they like to? Yeah. Uh, uh, Please feel free to go to positiveintelligence.com. First thing you might want to do is uh, click on saboteur tab, and that gives you a five-minute online saboteur assessment that in five minutes gets you a sense of uh, how you're self-sabotaging, which of these non-accomplished saboteurs you have. And then I would love for you to click on the programs tab, and there I describe a six-week uh, online uh, app guided training we have created so that people go through an intense 15 minute a day practice guided by me every day so that you get to a place of building up the muscle power uh, to, to have a fighting chance against your saboteurs and make this uh, muscle memory rather than a nice insight, which is really what creates the lasting transformation. That's that's great, and I I just want to honor and um, appreciate you, Shazad, for all the work that you've done. I know, uh, as we talked about earlier, your hero's journey of having to go through a very very challenging experience has helped you become the the, the, the more down the path of your full full potential and really giving back to the world. And I think your your work is very very important. So I appreciate your your time here today and for all the work that you do. The the final question I have is admittedly a, a double-barreled question. And if, if you just reflect on everything we've discussed today and all the work that you've been doing, for people to truly reconnect or, or rediscover their true self and full potential, what would you say, what is one myth that they need to see as a myth? And the, the second part of that is, what is one truth that if they embraced it would make all the difference for them? So let me go with my first impressions. Um... The myth is that there is a destination to arrive at, which is the destination called enlightenment. So what I have found is that saboteurs even turn this uh, journey of self-discovery and enlightenment and uh, 
self-actualization into a hyper-achiever destination kind of thing where they keep shaming you and guilting you for, why aren't you there yet? Why aren't you there? Why aren't you enlightened yet? And, and paradoxically, it, it, gets, it exhausts you and makes sure you don't continue with the journey. So uh, the key thing that I want to say is, is you're enlightened now. This, right this moment, if you just stop listening to the lie and the fear-based voice in your head and label it, let it go, and shift to your sage, quiet knowing about yourself, you are enlightened in this moment. And then in the next moment, the saboteur will come back. And the next moment, you have another chance to get enlightened. And then the next moment and the next moment. So think about the journey of self-actualization not as a destination, because that's a saboteur trick, but as a step-by-step reawakening and reawakening and reawakening to your true self. Um, and then know that it's a process that never ends. Mm. There is no there. There is no finality to it. It is a process, and it's a uh, just like in physical fitness, it's a, hopefully a joyful thing you make into a habit every day that you may you keep practicing these muscles and maintain them. Think about this as mental fitness rather than the insight model that says you get the insight, you're done, you're finished, you have achieved the destination. So that's the most important, you know myth that I want to uh, I want you to overcome uh, the trick of the saboteur the the thing that that is true is you know, think about why you go to these we are drawn to Star Wars why we are drawn to all these Hollywood stuff well, the reason is in a lot of these movies the hero uh, faces a challenge and difficulty and the hero uh, gets lost in the wilderness for a while, loses perspective, loses self-confidence, isn't quite sure they can make it. And then only after they step into the journey, and often they're pushed into the journey, will they dig deep and discover this amazing awesomeness within themselves that they didn't know they have. The reason we are drawn to that is that that is our story. The reason we are drawn to that is deeply in yourself, you know you're capable of so much more. Uh, in, in, in your sage, that your sage is far more magnificent and powerful being. And I'd love for you to bring that, you know, cheering of the hero on the screen in the movie theater to yourself. You are the hero in your own hero's journey. It is true that you have awesomeness in you. And don't wait for that awesomeness to be something that you finally get to one day. You know, feel the awesomeness now. And if you activate your the, the sage part of your brain, you will feel the beauty of yourself right now. Then, of course, you forget the next moment, then you can come back to it. Uh, but go, to, go find a picture of yourself when you were a kid. We use that tool a lot in our program. Go find a picture of yourself as a kid where your beautiful being that you are shines true. And help that childhood picture help you remember who you are. And fall, in, fall in love with yourself again. And it can be today, it can be now. You don't have to work on enlightenment for 20 years to get there. Hmm. It's moment by moment. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for all that wisdom. And, and thank you for, for being the hero that you are um, to, to so many people that you work with personally, through the people that you reach through your work, and perhaps most importantly of all, uh, to your son. And thank you for being an inspiring example of being a heroic father uh, and teacher. Uh, thank you for your time today. 
Great. Thank you, Chris. One correction. I do have a daughter, too, that I, I don't tickle because she didn't like tickling, but <laughs> I, I, I have worked with her and I adore her. And uh, so uh, so that's a huge part of my life. My book is dedicated to the two of them. They have been my greatest teachers. Uh, and also, Chris, I want to show my gratitude to you. Uh, you know, it's a real joy to be talking to somebody who so knows, uh, has done his homework. Has done, he's authentically on his own journey. It's a real delight to be met uh, with the level of you know understanding that you've brought into this. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to reconnect with your work, and um, uh, I will certainly work on my PQ reps in the in the weeks ahead. Uh, so thanks again. All right, take care. That was Shirzad Shamin, founder of Positive Intelligence. You can find all the links to him in our show notes. We want you to get the most from the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learn, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting today. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com slash connect. That's theignitionshow.com slash connect. And let us know what struck you. What was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? Or what are you curious about? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us, and it helps us get better. We actually read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website, and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.